All righty. So our first question says, what did Jesus mean when he said in John 16, 7, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to, to you? When there are places in the Old Testament that clearly say that the Holy Spirit was working in people's hearts. No, you're absolutely right. This is not talking about the Holy Spirit's working on the earth or in human hearts for the first time in human history. This is Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit coming, I think, um, in two elements or two aspects of what Jesus means here. One, first, if Jesus didn't leave and he stayed on earth, where would everyone go when they had spiritual questions? If Jesus was physically still on earth today, where would everybody be going with their Bible questions? They'd be going to Jesus. So one aspect is when I go, um, I won't be available for you. So therefore, what will you do? You will seek. And how will you seek? So you will, So how does the Holy Spirit work? Does the Holy Spirit force his way in? No. So the Holy Spirit will come in a new way because people will be seeking more to connect with Jesus. And as Jesus returns to heaven, he returns in his human form, still restricted by his human form. And prior to his coming as a human being, Jesus had all the attributes of the Godhead, including omnipresence. But as I understand it, he became human and retains his humanity for all eternity future. Thus, the Holy Spirit now comes not simply as the Holy Spirit, as his own mission, but he comes as Jesus' representative on earth. When Jesus leaves, the Holy Spirit comes to communicate Jesus' message to us as his representative. So if we, we will be seeking Jesus and thus opening our hearts, the Holy Spirit comes in a new way with a new message to bring Jesus into the hearts and minds of people, whereas Jesus himself was functioning in that role, I believe, in the Old Testament. So I think that's kind of a, a, a difference of what's going on here. I was greatly inspired in reading the book Conversations About God by Graham Maxwell. Is there anything different about your understanding of God's character versus theirs? So first off, I want to affirm the book. It's a great book. And if people are not familiar with things that Graham has spoken or or um, written, I would encourage you to listen to, uh, go to their website and listen to their lectures. Uh, he's got many that he's recorded over the years, many, many. Uh, the book Conversations About God, the book Servants and Friends, are all great, wonderful, and beautiful resources. I encourage you to, to listen to them. Uh, are there differences in our understanding about the character of God? I don't, don't think so on the, if you understand the character attributes of God. I think we're exactly on the same page, on the same field. Um, some could argue that we are just carrying the same football or the same message that they were carrying down the field into areas they never got to or never described in the way we're describing. But I don't think there's a significant difference if you look at the attributes and character of God that we're describing. There are some differences in the application. I think we're unfolding and unpacking some things that they never necessarily unfolded or unpacked. And I could describe some of those, but uh, but that the core of the character of God is the same. Daniel 9, 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins. Could this be speaking about Messiah making an end to sin per Matthew 1, 21? He will save his people from their sin. That's exactly what it's speaking about. It's about Jesus coming as our substitutionary savior, taking on a real humanity, living a sinless life, developing a, a, a sinless human character, destroying the infection of sin, rising on the third day. So it's absolutely talking about Jesus uh, addressing, dealing with, and eliminating the sin problem and opening the avenue for eternal salvation for all who will uh, trust and abide in him.
Why does David's newborn child have to die as a consequence of his sin? 2 Samuel 12, 13, quote, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Now, this is really a great text because it only tells you what the conversation was. And if you read the, the, uh, the events that unfold, what happened, the infant died. It does not tell you why. It's all open to read into it. And what you read into it is determined by the law lens you hold before you go to the text. So for those who hold the penal legal law view, they will say the law was broken. A death penalty had to be applied. Punishment had to be meted out. God loved David and had a purpose for David. He forgave David, but he still had to punish the sin. So God killed his son to, 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 to punish the sin or something along those lines. Of course, that's one interpretation. It doesn't actually say that. It only says that because you showed utter contempt for the Lord, the, bo- the son you're born with will die. It's telling um, what will happen. It's not telling that God is the inflictor of this. Another interpretation, and these are all interpretive. There was something. There was some congenital anomaly uh, with the child. God foresaw in his foreknowledge that this child was going to die of some congenital condition. And God took the opportunity to simply use that foreknowledge to communicate to David uh, the consequence of his uh, of his uh, act was to have a child with a, with a congenital condition. The child's going to die. Another, cons- another interpretation, and, and, and use that in a therapeutic way to bring a conviction to David's heart so that David would resonate with the awfulness of what he'd done and, and be repulsed at his own sin, losing something important and valuable to David. Uh, another interpretation is that there was nothing congenitally wrong with the child, but God needed to send an object lesson and a teaching lesson to David and to the rest of us who read these stories, that the fruit of sin is death. And this relationship with Bathsheba was a self-centered, exploitive, sinful action on David's part, and the fruit of sin is death. And so the child was born healthy, and God simply put the child to sleep. The child went to sleep. Sudden infant death syndrome. No pain, no suffering, no torment to the child. The child just slept. And the child will be resurrected in the proper resurrection of the righteous uh, because the child did no wrong and be raised in a new heaven and earth without any without any dental decay, without any cavities to be filled, without any broken bones, with all perfect and glorious health so the child actually gets a better outcome. Um, but God needed to send this message. And then when David had repented, had a new heart and right spirit, acted in love to, to restore to Bathsheba what he had taken from her, her name, her station, her position, her livelihood, a husband who loved her, and he married her. Then they had a child of wisdom, Solomon. And so God had to, God, so another explanation is God was simply taking this opportunity to demonstrate fruits of sin or death, fruits of God's love is wisdom. But I'll leave it up to you. The Bible doesn't say. My personal, I think you will know what, what I think is going on here. Tim, is there a possibility that another option is uh, also possible that when David made a pronouncement to, to Nathan, that man deserves to die and he should replace that, you know, fourfold, that this child was the beginning of the four he lost. He actually, it was a fulfillment of his own judgment. 
Yeah, I, I'm not a fan of that because I don't I don't go down the fan I don't go down the role that a fa- that a son's sins can be paid for or a father's sins can be paid for by the son. In fact, Jeremiah and God and Ezekiel explicitly says that the sins of the father will not be placed on the son, and the sins of the son will not be placed on the father. So to go down that line for that reason, I'm not a fan of. But I could see how some could interpret it that way. I just personally don't interpret it that way. So, uh, if someone makes a statement or puts forth a teaching publicly that is viewed by me to be incorrect. Is it just for me to call them out by name? Observations, not question. I see the Pharisee seeking public display through loud arguments while Jesus seemed to quietly go about his ministry of healing and teaching, only addressing the accusations of the Pharisees when they were right there in person with him. So in my my approach has historically been, and I try to do this, to call out the arguments, the lies, the distortions, the falsehoods, I really have tended not to try to call out people um, because the the arguments are really what's important, not the person spreading the argument. So I, I tend not to do that. The, 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 the caveat with that is in our society today, if you're writing an article or writing a book and you're trying to um, highlight the false arguments and false positions that are being promoted in uh, our society, in culture, in religion, in the church, and and you're citing those sources, it, you're required to reference those sources. So while I would prefer not to attach names, if I don't attach names, then it sets up the idea that I'm just making it up. Nobody really believes, and I've had that. When I when I have presented these things and just cited the argument without actually attaching a source to it, it's commonly, re- some people will say, nobody teaches that. That's not true. Our church, and I've had this, nobody in our church believes that. When I've said things, for instance, like, and it's taught within the Adventist church that, that God had to kill Jesus on the cross. I've had pushback around the circle. Nobody in the Adventist church believes that. The Adventist church doesn't teach that. And, uh, and so then you find yourself in the position of saying, you're just making that up. It's a straw man argument of your own, so you can make your position look right. And so, therefore, you need to cite the sources that are actually putting this out there um, and I would prefer just to cite them as the argument and deal with the argument. But in our society, if you do that, then it might be plagiarism or or allegations of um, making it up. And so it's it's for me. I tend to focus on the argument, but I do cite the sources because I think that gives validity that I'm not just making stuff up to argue against. But I I don't try to call the people out. I don't think there's any any need to call out the individual, embarrass them, or anything like that. And th- and that's it for today. Wait, wait, no, one just came in. Hold on. Uh, Let's see. Yeah, regarding the question you answered about the book Conversations About God, would you mind expanding and giving uh, the website where people can get a free book mailed to them anywhere in the world? We have been um, giving out this book for a few years and you uh, and find that it would be awesome gateway to further life. so you can go to pineknoll.org, P-I-N-E-K-N-O-L-L.org. Uh, and, uh, and somewhere on that website, you can request a Conversations About God, and they ship them, I believe, anywhere in the world. So, uh, yes, that's a great re- reference and resource. So thank you for asking for that. All right, let's close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you so much 
for your love and the truth that you revealed in Christ. Make us effective witnesses that we can share this message, that hearts and minds can be freed, and you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.